The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just sang asking about what reason we have to fear, what reason we have to doubt. And of course, there are a thousand reasons to fear and doubt in this world that is full of spear-throwing enemies. There are many reasons to fear if I just consider myself and look at all the frightening, terrible places that I willingly wander to. But the point, of course is to hold up next to the fearful things the, the rest that we, your people, have been given in you. And that's what we're going to consider today if you will graciously draw near to us and open our minds to see it. And we do need you to graciously draw near and open our minds because we are, by nature, hard of hearing closed-minded, and stiff. So God, be gracious and draw near. Be merciful and deal with us. Most of us here who are your people and probably some who aren't. Would you mercifully deal with us to overlook and overcome and, and overrule what is in our fallen natures a resistance to you. And for us, your people, fan into flame that new nature that is planted in us and is growing and will triumph one day. Bless God. But fan it into flame and cause it to grow. Plant that new nature in some here, Lord, I pray. Cause them to see the fear that is natural in this world because it is a fearful place. And to see the only sure comfort that there is, you, a shield and a fortress, a tower of refuge. Cause them to see that and to flee to you. Cause us to see you as that way and to flee to you and stay in you and hide in you. Spirit of God, would you have your way in us to point us to the Son and through Him to the Father. We are His by creation and we long to rest in Him. So help us, please. <clears throat> Make these words clear. Help me to understand the text and, and speak of it accurately. Help us to work through all the, the length of this and all the details of this and, and to see, even if briefly, the main point, to find you as a shelter, a security in you that is reason not to fear. So help us, Lord, this morning I pray. Open up your word to us. Give life to us here. Use us, build your kingdom in us, 
honor Christ this morning, I pray in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 20, where we pick up the story of David's flight from King Saul. Last week, looking in chapter 19, we saw Saul's hatred of David and his intent to kill him finally boil to the surface and come out. It had been there all along. It had been there kind of hiding in Saul's heart from chapter 18 on when he saw David suddenly in a new light. He, he loved David for his success and for his, his anointing from God until he realized that that growing love and loyalty towards David was a direct threat to his own rule. And then he decided he needed to kill him. So that had been there in chapter 18, and it finally came out into the open in chapter 19. And we saw there three different ways that the Lord rescued David from death, delivered him throughout the chapter until finally in, in the final fourth scene, we saw David flee to Ramah, where Samuel the prophet lived, to, to Ramah a few miles away, and, and to go into this particular, probably a neighborhood or a, maybe a camp called Naoth there at that city. And he was there, and Saul heard about it, and Saul sent messengers to go get him. And one by one, these groups of messengers, until then finally Saul also himself went. And the Spirit of God moved and directly intervened to deliver David to rescue him from Saul, rendering Saul helpless and actually humiliated, unclothed, out of his mind all day and all night. There prostrate at Naoth and Ramah, which gives David a chance to escape. We saw in that God's consistent hand of deliverance, his, his consistent hand providentially through the first three scenes and then in the fourth scene directly, supernaturally intervening. We saw God committed to establishing the kingdom of David and thereby delivering David. That's why he did it, is that he's after David's kingdom. He's going to establish him and secure him. And us too in David's kingdom. God is about securing his people. We saw that last week in chapter 19, and that's the theme that continues on into chapter 20 in a, in a different way, using different language, particularly using the language of covenant this morning. So as David flees away from the temporarily incapacitated Saul, flees into chapter 20, the, the text continues right on with the story, and that's where we will pick up reading about David's encounter with Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's, it's a, I, sh I should point out, it's a long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a lengthy chapter. And there are a good number of details in it that we're not going to touch on this morning. But they're there because of the importance of this chapter and the, the desire to make us stop and linger. When you read a story that's full of details, it makes you stop and linger. And so we'll read it. And linger while ending up focusing on, on the main issues in it. So let me read all of First Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks 
Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. If there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Then Jonathan said, Far be it from me, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But, should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shoot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go. The Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, Oh, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, 
Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him, a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go, and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. First Samuel chapter 20. Begins verse 1 again with David fleeing from Naoth, where he was, somewhat strangely, back to Saul's home because he has to see Jonathan. That's where Jonathan lives. Verses 1 through 10 are all about David beseeching Jonathan. David is not trying, understand, David is not trying to figure out what Saul's intentions here are. He's pretty clear on that by this point. He's trying to help Jonathan understand it because Jonathan's been left in the dark, as becomes clear. Jonathan somewhat naively thinks, surely my dad will tell me, like he did last time in chapter 19, if he's after you, he'll tell me. And he swore in the name of the Lord that he would not kill you. David says otherwise. He's trying to help Jonathan understand, which is why verse 8 he says, deal kindly with your servant, because when you find out that your father means to kill me, there's going to be a difficulty here. So deal kindly with your servant then, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And that verse there introduces the idea of covenant, which is all over this chapter the word's used once or twice, but its concepts are, are throughout. David's referring here in verse 8 to how Jonathan, back in chapter 18, initiated a covenant with him. And, and Jonathan, you recall, was the one who initiated, had to be in fact, because he's, he's so far as superior. He's the crown prince, 
David is his servant, as he said three times here. And you recall he's perhaps 25 or 30 years older. So he's, he's the superior, and he has to initiate the covenant with, with him. But he saw David take his life into his hand, step out, trust the Lord, and kill Goliath, and loves this, this kindred spirit that he sees, this one who, who trusts God, this one who is the defender of the people of God. And he sees that, he loves it. He says he loved him as himself and made a covenant with him. David's referring back to that. And on the basis of that says, when you find out that I'm a wanted man, show me kindness. Keep the covenant. And they talk about how he'll go about telling him, and then the scene shifts to the field. Which is the point of the passage. If you look at this, as many people have observed, this, this scene in the field is, is entirely unnecessary to the flow of the story. If you're, just, if you're just reading along in verse 10, how will I know how you, what you find out? Verse 18, Jonathan answers, here's how I will tell you. That would be sufficient if God was just trying to tell us the story and communicate only how it was that Jonathan told David. But right in the middle there, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, right in the middle there is stuck in because that's what we're supposed to be focusing on. He asks Jonathan, how will we know? And Jonathan says, I think, kind of looking around, let's go have a talk. Let's go out in the field where we can be alone. And he says to him some amazing things. David, you mentioned kindness and covenant. Well, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness here. Calls on the Lord to come down and be witness between them. You can almost see him raising his right hand in verse 12. As the Lord is witness of my covenant pledge to before, I'm going to find out what we need to find out. And I tell you, I will protect you so you can go in safety. May the Lord be with you, end of verse 13, as he has been with my father, which is an amazing statement. He has, in the past, been with my father. And that time is over. I know that. May the anointing of God on the king be on you, David, says the crown prince. It's a remarkable statement. And then he goes on to say even more. And if I'm still alive, when the Lord places you on the throne, don't kill me. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not, verse 15, cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off all the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What, what's he talking about? He's talking about the completely normal, expected cleansing that a new king initiates. Every culture, every king, you can read about it in the Bible, all throughout history, across the centuries, when a new king is crowned, job number one is wipe out everybody else that anybody else might think should be king instead. Before the sun goes down on coronation day, there's a whole bunch of death. And the crown prince 
would be potential rival number one, and the son of the crown prince would be potential rival number two. They are the top of the hit list. And Jonathan says, I know you are going to be king. Show mercy to me. And if I happen to be dead at that moment, show mercy to my son and my sons. This remarkable pleading. Remember me in your kingdom, David. And it is coming. I am sure of it. We, me, my family, we are not among the enemies of David. And the Lord wipes them all out. Don't put me in that group. May the Lord take vengeance on all of David's enemies. But let me make another covenant with you and with your seed after you, with your descendants after you. And he makes David swear another covenant. He brings to him another covenant because of his great love for him. End of verse 17. The whole paragraph is remarkable and very unusual. And then the text moves on. Giving the plan. Come back to the the matter at hand. So he talks about the plan, how he's going to notify him of the arrow shooting and all that. But then he comes back to this covenant at the end of verse 23. But as for the matter that we were talking about, the Lord will remain between me and you forever. He's still got the covenant on his mind. Well, we see then, the following verses, how, the, how the, all the events play out. Saul finally tips his hand to Jonathan, verse 30, in his fierce anger. And he is cursing Jonathan, even though it sounds like he's insulting his mother. I mean, if you think, I don't mean to send our minds in the gutter here, but if you think about swearing even in English, oftentimes we insult one person for the sake of insulting another person, even sometimes insulting mothers for the sake of insulting their sons. He's insulting the son. He's not insulting his wife. Saul is meaning to criticize, humiliate, degrade Jonathan because he knows that Jonathan is on David's side. You Fool, don't you realize your kingdom will not stand as long as the son of Jesse lives? Yeah, I got that. They see the same thing from totally different angles. And Saul then, ironically, puts David in the same, puts Jonathan in the same camp as David by targeting him as he targeted David. Saul loves to throw spears. He misses, and Jonathan, in hot anger, rises up and leaves, angry and grieved. End of verse 34. Grieved for David, because his father had disgraced David. The hymn there at the end of the verse is about David. We see again there Jonathan's love for David, that when he is humiliated by Saul, he's sad for David because he should not be dishonored in such a way. The passage then ends with a a very poignant goodbye scene. Jonathan and David see each other one other time, but it's very brief. This This is the goodbye, the farewell of the Scripture. And it's also the point when Jonathan ceases to be a main character in the Bible. And this is a a poignant, moving situation. We get the details of the arrows and all that, and 
they planned that out because who knows who would be around and if they'd be able to talk. But as he sees, as the boy leaves, they have some room and they can speak to one another and see one another. And they part company in honor, David bowing down and in great sorrow, weeping and in great affection, kissing. And don't misunderstand that. People have misunderstood. They kissed each other and have done some bizarre things with the passage and even with this whole relationship, but it's, it's out of ignorance. Middle Eastern men kiss each other a lot. Not lip to lip, but cheek to cheek. And it can have all different gradations to it. It's, it can be very formal for acquaintances, Brief and formal. Almost no contact except the lip lip and the cheek. Or in in a dear friendship setting like this one, it can be tight with tears flowing and kissing, 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 weeping. These two men, and by covenant, their families, love one another. And they are grieved to part ways, knowing not what will come, other than knowing that my dear friend David is going to head out into the wilderness with my father chasing him for his life. And I'm going to go back into the city and find I don't know what. There is a lot of emotion in this very charged situation. But how it ends is, is noteworthy. It comes back to the covenant. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between your offspring, my offspring and your offspring forever. Go in peace. Although neither of us are in peace. But go in peace. Because the Lord stands between us. That's the passage. It's a lengthy, remarkable, emotional section that has in the middle a main piece that should draw our attention with all the other threads throughout the passage we talk about covenant this morning. So let me make this main statement and then unpack it with two different subpoints. Here's the main point I'm working towards this morning from chapter 20. Because of God's great love for us, He has secured us in covenant with His Son. Because of God's great love for us, He has secured us in covenant with His Son. The securing is the it's the thing I, I hope you bring out of this that, that grabs you this morning, that there's something unique about covenant that secures, and it's based on love. Towards that end, let me make the first observation here. Covenants of the Lord are born from love to bless. Covenants of the Lord are born from love. They come from love. They have their origin in love. And they are created in order to bless the members of this covenant. 
those who are in this covenant relationship. Covenant, in its basic form, to understand the, the basic idea of covenant, it is a relationship between two parties, could be individuals, could be groups of people, between two parties, most often initiated by the superior, though if, if the people are, are equal in, in age, station of life, etc., they could be initiated, co-initiated, but most often initiated by a superior, that either explicitly or implicitly clarifies how the two parties are to relate to one another. I will be like this towards you, you will be like this towards me. Thus and so. And then that relationship, so it's specifying the relationship. These two parties, often like this, but could be like this, they're going to be related, which means that this one will do and be, and this one will do and be, and then that is sealed or, or formalized, bound together in a special, powerful way, usually with something like, we swear to this, we vow it before a witness, and if that does not happen for some reason or another, then this is the ramification. This is the consequence. So we will be like this, and if I fail, this is what will happen to me, often carried out by the witness. And if you fail, this is what will happen to you, often carried out by the witness. It's the basic idea of a covenant. And here I'm talking about a covenant of the Lord, or covenant before the Lord, because in fact there are all kinds of covenants throughout history, and I'm not speaking about every sort of covenant. There are covenants made between random kings and people. There are covenants made between homeowners and a community. A homeowners association covenant. I'm not talking about all those. I'm talking about a covenant that is of the Lord or before the Lord. Which means that He is the one who's overseeing it. He is the one who governs it. It's his standards that hold sway here. And he is the one who will be judge should one party or the other break it. We see that throughout the passage here. The covenant of the Lord language is used in verse 8. Verse 12, the Lord, the God of Israel, is called up as witness. Verse 23, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Verse 42, the Lord shall be between me and you and between our offspring. That's the two parties. And between, or maybe over, is the Lord. It's a covenant of the Lord, before the Lord, according to his standards. And it is born from love, from affection. This text makes the point by using the word love over and over again. We might say affection or maybe willingness or desire point is not from duty not from obligation the one who initiates the covenant does so by choice freely because he or sometimes she wants to born out of love loves what's emphasized here what's emphasized back in chapter 18 if you want flip back to 18 for a moment look at the very beginning of 18 verse 1 the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan sees David come back from killing Goliath, and his soul is knit to David's soul. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, loved him as himself. Verse 3, 
Then Jonathan made a covenant because he loved him as himself. What, what's the starting point? The love is the starting point. This, this might seem pedantic here, but there's a point to it. The love is the starting point. Same thing in our, in our chapter here today, chapter 20. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Why did he make another covenant? Because again, this love. It comes from love. And from that love then, there's a desire to make a covenant. And then the covenant produces the obligation. It doesn't start with obligation. Note that. Love causes the bond and then an oath, a vow, swearing, seals it. Before the Lord, in this case, a covenant of the Lord, an oath before the Lord keeps it. The love leads to a desire to make a covenant which then leads to an oath. See the order there. The love says, I love you. I want to stick with you. I want to be here with you. I'm going to be your friend, your partner, your trustworthy companion. And to help you believe that in the hard times, to help you believe that in the hard times, I'm going to cement it with an oath before one who will strike me dead if I go back on it. I'm going to be here with you, and to prove it, I'm going to chain myself to you. So what keeps me here? Not just my expressed intention, but the chain. What got me in the chain? My love. Starts with love. But why does the lover give the chain? Or swear an oath? Because... He wants the other partner, or very often the weaker partner, to know for certain this one's not going anywhere. The stronger wants to create for the weaker an atmosphere in which, a, a platform upon which some unique, otherwise difficult or impossible fruit can grow. Something on which, I'll put it like this, risky allegiance can happen. Overseen by the Lord, born from love for the sake of blessing. This is the blessing that a covenant provides. A platform on which the under one can say, I'm safe. security so I can step out into a risky endeavor I can take a chance with this one because this one has said I'm not going anywhere believe it you can take a risk in an environment like that you can go say to a person who otherwise might want you dead but you can go to him and say, help me, protect me, bless me, 
because of this covenant. Remember the covenant. It's a risky allegiance that is one contrary to how the world works. Covenant enables that. And it frees us up then in this risky trusting. It frees up then great emotional bonds, great trusts, great dependence, a seeking of great help. There's two things there. The blessings that the security provides are emotional and very physical and tangible, both. Emotionally, it lets you let down the guard. Be vulnerable, naked and not ashamed. In front of one who has said, I'm not going anywhere. I can be trusted and depended on to be here tomorrow, even if you show me that. Whoa, I'm still here. creates a great emotional opportunity and a great physical, tangible opportunity. A very uh, very clear, very strong help can be given by one who is there for you. Covenant comes from love, creates security, known conscious security, for the sake of providing emotional and physical blessing. Allowing a person to be emotionally vulnerable to experience love, connection, and to find help to live in a life that's full of trouble. That's what covenant does. So we should look for a moment, we should stop and we should consider the covenant relationships that we are in we find ourselves in and ask, is that what's going on? So think for a second about your covenants, about your covenant relationships. Maybe maybe a friendship one. Maybe you have some sort of a relationship like this with a friend. Not very common today, but possible. But I want to kind of give attention to two that are more common. The covenant relationship first that's formed by a church family. When Christians pledge themselves to do more than just church surf or perpetually date the church, but you actually marry it. To pledge themselves, a Christian, to pledge themselves formally to one local body before the Lord with Him as guide, with Him over it to judge and to say, then before Him and before this other party here, I am of this people. I will give myself, my allegiance, my love for the good of others here. As best as I can discern what that would be, with the Lord as guide and Lord as judge over it. The church is a covenant community. Now, it's with our particular kind of church, it's not perhaps common for us to use that word covenant but the church is a covenant community. We have language in our, in our bylaws, in fact, and in our membership material that talks about half a dozen or a dozen different things that we say we, we want to get together to do these things, and we don't use the word covenant, but that's what we're saying. We aspire to be this and do this with one another. To give ourselves to this group and only when that happens 
does the blessing of this come about? To say, I am here. I'm committed. I'm yours. You're mine. And you're going to be here tomorrow if I insult you. The emotional openness, freedom. And the very tangible help. I'm going to give all of my, my treasure and my time to this and to you. There's great potential blessing that comes on the other side of marrying the church. And not just dating it. So are you married to the local church? Or are you just dating it perpetually? And if you're only dating, then you are not yet in the place of the full blessing that could be yours in this covenant community. Covenant is designed for something and you're only halfway there. But of course, I use that language of dating and marriage because the most common human covenant of the Lord is marriage. Church covenants are not nearly as strong and binding as the covenant of marriage. There are numerous reasons to leave a church, even something so simple as moving away. So obviously the church covenant is not like the marriage covenant. If you move to Dallas, you take your spouse with you, but you don't take your church. The marriage covenant is much different and much tighter. So you who are married or who may be married one day or who are around people who are married, all of us, consider the covenant of marriage born from love but in the vow before God and these witnesses. You hear how even in the ceremony we're saying, may the Lord stand between you and me. And may these ones stand between you and me. It's born from love, but then you make a vow. You swear. Sometimes I think it might be helpful if we, if we did this. We don't. But people, ironically, go into court and do this and take that more seriously than through sickness and in health the richer, for poor, till death do us part. This I vow before God and these witnesses until I don't feel like it anymore. I am yours for your good before the Lord according to His plans, whether He brings us riches or poverty, whether He brings us sickness or in health, may God stand between us as judge and what a blessing is opened up on the other side of that vow. The emotional openness that comes from saying this. The only reason I did this is because I love you, but I'm doing this so that you know I will be here tomorrow. Even if you take it all off and show me, whoa, I'm still going to be here. physical, you know, the image that I just conjured up there, has meaning because it's supposed to also be about the emotional naked and not ashamed. And if you show me that, I'm still here for your good before the Lord. 
What a blessing is opened up there at, at the emotional, at the heart level of knowing and relating oneness as well as real, tangible, dependable help. A partner in life, in, in living in a world that is full of spear-throwing enemies. I mean, my goodness. What a blessing. A relationship in which you can show to one another the steadfast love of the Lord that we so need and long for. The covenant bond of marriage. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more I could say about that, but this is not a sermon. It's not a text about marriage. So I have to kind of cut this short and just say, if you want to talk more about this, because you are realizing I'm not walking in faithfulness to the covenant vow that I made. Or I haven't walked in faithfulness. Come and talk to an elder or pastor about that. If, if, you, if you're realizing I, I'm long past that, we're already divorced. And you're dealing with that. And you're thinking, what do I do with that? Come talk to me. I can't deal with all those things now, but I would love to in person. But I just want to simply ask you, are you walking in faithfulness to that covenant and to maybe perhaps try to lure you to want to do it because of the blessing opened up on the other side of that? And we need to, we need to be aware of this because we, we face a world out there that says, this is, is a chain that limits you. And I want to say this is the chain that frees you. So believe that and need help thinking through something, come and, and talk to somebody. But the covenant of marriage, church covenants, covenants between friends, even notable friends like, like Jonathan and David here, well, we need to consider all of them. We need to do more than just consider those covenants because there's some other big idea here that probably most of us can't help but think about because there's another covenant on the stage, standing right over here that I haven't touched on yet. And it's a covenant that is the covenant that enables all the other covenants. It's a covenant that secures the other covenants. It's a covenant to which you can run when you find that you've been trampled or deceived or hurt by every other covenant or relationship that you've attempted to build thought was steadfast and proved to be... I know I'm talking to people who have experienced covenant breaking because I live in this world. We've all experienced covenant breaking, unfortunately, tragically. But it's real. It's there. So what do we do? Well, we say, ah, and we run to a different covenant and hide ourselves in that. We need to consider something else, which is the second point. My second observation, and this is shorter. Out of love for His people, God has made covenant with us in Christ. Out of love for His people, God has made covenant with us in Christ. It's the other minute. You're aware, if you're a Christian, you're aware of what's standing over here. It's the covenant that God has made with us in Christ. When Jonathan talks to David in verse 12 and following, he is speaking in a context that we need to remember. You've got a huge assumption that is behind this passage. You see it in certain places like verse 12. The Lord, the God of Israel. 
What is he thinking when he says that? He's thinking of all of this back here, and he's realizing we have a God. We We are a people in a covenant. That's the whole deal here. When he makes a covenant of the Lord, he's got an idea of, I'm, I'm modeling a covenant on the, on the covenant that God has made with us. And when I invite the Lord to come and stand between us as judge, the reason he can stand between us and judge is that he's our God. We, we are before him, beneath him. The reason that in our covenant, David, you might show me the steadfast love of the Lord is that there is steadfast love from the Lord for you and me. Rather than only wrath. He's got a huge assumption there. So to keep that in mind, his context. He is a man, David, Jonathan, they are men who live and are speaking in a context of God making covenant with them. And I want to spell out just very briefly a couple of details how we need to think about that covenant, but I know you know most of them, and I want to be sure in our time here that we understand some of the ramification to the fact that you are a person in covenant with the Lord. But something needs to be understood here. These guys are in a covenant, accepted, objects of love, because of the covenant action God has already taken, and from their perspective, the covenant action that He would take. They live in the middle of a, of a covenant-making endeavor. They can look back and they can say, God made covenant with Abraham and said, I will be God to your seed, to your people after you. And he made covenant then in the time of Moses with us when he claimed us out of bondage and then spoke to us, this is what our relationship will be like. This is what you will be. This is what I will be. And this is what will happen to you if you break the covenant. I will strike you dead. And they stood before the quaking mountain and shook Uh, Wait a minute, I thought this was good news. Yeah, because he said more too. Because that bond of the covenant comes from somewhere. It comes from love first. He made covenant so they would know. So they would see this and trust it and have have a place to stand before God so they could say to one another, I'm going to risk my life before you based on this one. I know him. So he, he did this on purpose, but it comes from love. And this God who in love looks at a people, not just right before him, but looks down through the ages at you and me, said, I know you're going to break the covenant. As soon as I give it, you're going to build a golden calf. It's not even going to get delivered to you yet before the calf rises up and you bow down before it. So I've got to do something about that because I want you as a people. What am I going to do about that? Well, I'm going to demand death from you and then I'm going to provide a dire. And so the covenant itself had baked into it how we get around ourselves dying in this bond by shedding the blood of animals, lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb, in this process leading up to the lamb who is the final seal of the covenant. A new covenant made in His blood. 
So they look back at what had, what had happened, and maybe even we see a hint. I'm not certain what all is in Jonathan's mind as he looks ahead and makes covenant with the seed of David. There's some hints there, but I, I can't be certain. But the rest of the Old Testament leads us on and leads us on and leads us on to look ahead at a, a new and greater covenant sacrifice. Christ. So you need to understand something, that you don't get into covenant just by saying, I want to be in the covenant. You get into covenant with God by taking Him up on His covenant offer of sacrifice to atone for your covenant breaking, which is to say, you trust Jesus. Because God says this is what it will be like. He issues to us ten words, ten statements, the Ten Commandments. This is what the covenant will be like, and you're a lawbreaker, but I have provided a way for that to be taken care of. Trust Him. Christ. But most of us here know that, and so I want to point out what this passage indicates to us Maybe loop it back into the previous considerations of covenant. There's something pointed out here about the difference that it makes to be in covenant with God in Christ. God in love, so follow thinking here, God in love made a covenant with you. If you're a Christian, He secured you in that. And what has that done? For blessing's sake. It provides you a platform for a risky allegiance. It provides for you a place to emotionally risk, knowing there's a sure platform on which you stand. It provides a place for you to physically, tangibly risk, knowing there's a platform on which you stand. To change it back to some of the things I already spoke about, suppose yourself to be in a marriage covenant. With a spouse who vowed, I will love you, I will protect you, I will take care of you, and who does not. Who does not. I'm not saying anything disputed here from your perspective, in your eyes. I'm saying who just doesn't. That's the fact. Let's assume that. Here's a spouse you're bound to, and this person does not care for you, does not respect you, does not love you, does not do what he said or she said she's going to do. What do you do? You go back to the covenant and say, we vow the two of us with the Lord standing between us. And the reason the Lord stands between us is because I belong to Him in covenant. And so do you, at least you say you do. But I, the important point is I belong to Him in covenant. And He then has secured me. And so in looking not at you, covenant breaker, but in looking at him, ultimate covenant keeper, I can look at him and say, you provide a platform for me to take a risk in allegiance to you and do what I vowed I would do to this one. And if it all falls apart at his hands and he throws a spear at me, you be judge. I will entrust myself to you who judges justly. You see that. You keeping covenant, you living in, in that marriage or in any other way on earth is dependent on, is based upon, is supported by and strengthened by the fact that this one has you and has vowed 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said that, and so as to be clear about it, swore it on himself because he has no higher person to swear on. He has to call himself to be judged between himself and you. But so that by those two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he said, I am here. Trust me. And take the risk of living in allegiance to me. And know the, the glory and the joy of the emotional. Ah, I'm okay. I'm okay. You have me. To know that, experience it, live it, rejoice in it, rest in it. And then the real physical, tangible. And when I step out into a world that is full of people who in some degree or another are problematic, you will support me. You will be my strength, be my shield, my refuge. Lies like arrows may pierce me. Spears may pin me to the wall. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You have me and I'll be okay. Seeing that and believing that, I will then risk allegiance in this living, in this life here. You've provided in binding yourself to me, you have provided a wonderful platform on which a risky allegiance can flourish In love, He made covenant with you. In love, He secured it with you with the blood of Christ to bless you in your heart and in your walking. What a good God He is. Walk in covenant faithfulness with Him. Let's pray. Lord, You are a covenant maker and a covenant keeper and I bless Your name for that and I pray that You would Forgive me of my covenant breaking and help me to believe what I just said. Our hearts are prone to wander, Lord. Come and bind our hearts to Yourself. Lord, meet with my brothers and sisters and my friends here. even those I don't know who are here, Lord, meet with them in the next few minutes as we think, reflect on your covenant and your goodness to us. Would you speak to them either words of conviction, words of comfort, words of assurance and love, words of offer and hope, whatever is needed, Lord, would you speak? Would you build a people? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.